Let's open our Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter number 1. Revelation chapter number 1. If you don't know where that's at in your Bible, go to the end. Turn back a few pages. You'll find it there. Revelation chapter 1. Let me say how thankful I am to our visitors for being here and our home folk. What a blessing it is to be in the house of God today. And I trust that uh, you're here by providence. Amen. Ain't nobody here by accident. And uh, we're here by providence. Amen. And I'm thrilled that you're here today. I trust God's going to speak to your heart. I'm looking forward to sharing a meal with you today as well. And uh, excited about that. I appreciate all the hard work that has gone into it. Folks even now laboring. And uh, we want them to know how much we appreciate them as well. So you be sure and tell them so we can see them. Revelation chapter number 1. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. Revelation chapter 1 verse number 1. The Word of God says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto Him, to show unto His servants things which must shortly come to pass. And He sent and signified it by His angel unto His servant John, who bear record of the Word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that He saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him, and they also which pierced Him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him. Even so, Amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice was as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. What a blessing to be in your house, Lord. It's by your grace 
and Your mercy that we've come to this place. And Lord, I, I trust this morning that we are not here by accident, but that Your providential hand has brought us unto this place. That we might hear the Word of God, that we might worship together, Lord, most of all, that we might hear from heaven, that You might speak to each and every heart. And I pray that You would take Your Word this morning and wield it. It is Your sword. It's the sword of the Spirit. We ask You to wield it, Father, in our hearts today. Lord, not just from the preacher to the pew, but Lord, all of us as we bow before You today, desiring to hear from You and for You to speak to our life and our needs and our condition. And Lord, help us to be obedient as You speak to us. Bless each and every person here. If there's any that are lost and undone, I pray they not leave this place there. They recognize that. Uh, repented of their lost condition and asked Christ to save them. Lord, I know if they'll do that, You will. Lord, You did it for me. You did it for so many. I know You'll do it for them as well. And I pray that they would before it's everlasting too late. Lord, we ask that Your blessing be upon this service and all that takes place. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In Revelation chapters number 1, 2, and 3, we find messages that are delivered to seven distinct literal historical churches. They are named for us in our text. They are the church at Ephesus and at Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Make no mistake, these were literal historical churches that uh, the Holy Spirit had a message for and that John was to pin down and deliver to them. However, most uh, theologians, most uh, commentators and most, uh, you know, uh, uneducated men like me, I guess, have uh, have also at least uh, noticed the fact that the condition of these churches, as they grow progressively worse, they are degrading in nature, in their condition, they seem to in some way mirror the way that the church has developed, uh, particularly in the West. And I've got some thoughts as to why that is and, and what God's doing there. But suffice it to say, there certainly is a prophetic significance to this. We see a course and a path that the churches are taking. You want my opinion. I know that's what you come for, right? No, that's not why you're here. You're here for the Word of God. But I will tell you this. Uh, I, I believe that what you have is a course that any person's spiritual condition takes if they don't repent. I think it begins with losing your first love like they did at Ephesus. And I think it winds up with being lukewarm and apathetic and crowding Christ out of your life. He may still be your Savior. You may still be as saved as you ever were. And of course, if you're saved at all, then you're eternally saved. But you're not fellowshipping with Him the way that He desires to fellowship with you. And I think when we look at the church on a large spectrum, that's what it looks like. You know why? Because mankind ain't getting better. Mankind's getting worse. We're not on an upward climb, we're on a downward slope. And that's just the condition of humanity, and the Bible said it would be so. So there is a historical understanding of these uh, churches, and there's a prophetic understanding of these churches, but I believe also there's a practical understanding. What I mean to say by that is the same thing that plagued these churches, uh, because humankind does not change, the same thing that plagued them are the same things that plague us as churches today. The same problems they had are the same kind of problems that we have. Then it's good to know that God is not silent to His people. He speaks to their problems, their needs, their weaknesses and infirmities. And we can find in these seven letters to these churches a valuable, precious instruction for our church today. But it's interesting to note to me, and if the Lord will let us, we might do a little preaching on the rest of these churches. I've quit calling things series because I, I have a fear of commitment. Somebody say amen to that. So... I've quit calling them series of sermons. You know, we just we just doing as the Lord lets us. Uh, but, you know, we may go on and preach on some of these on Sunday mornings. But it's interesting to know that before God ever turns His attention to those churches in particular, 
He has a message that is to be delivered to all seven of them. They are all to hear this message. It must be a pretty important message. I would say in Revelation chapter number 1, we have one of the greatest messages that can be delivered to the church. And I'm not talking about my sermon, but I'm talking about the Scripture. The Word of God gives a message that I think every church needs to hear. And that includes Walridge Baptist Church this morning. We need the truth that's contained in Revelation chapter number 1. I was walking through this passage, and to be honest, uh, you know, your your soup would evaporate, boil out of the crock pot before I got it all preached, and so I can't preach all of it. But I did notice a few things when I moved through this passage. We'll focus our attention on the last few verses, but I want you to notice them with me because I think we ought to say something about them. First, we find as we read through Revelation chapter 1, the spiritual character of the book is mentioned. Look what it says in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto Him to show unto His servants things which must shortly come to pass. And He sent and signified it by His angel unto His servant John. When you read the book of Revelation, same thing as the rest of your King James Bible, you're not reading the thoughts of man. You're not reading the opinions of man. You're not reading the wisdom of man. But rather, you're reading the very mind of God given by the Holy Spirit, bestowed spiritually upon His people. Hey, listen, it's interesting to me. I was listening. I, I like to listen to the Bible read sometimes. And I was listening to Mr. Alexander Scurby read the King James Bible. You know, he's the main one. You're either going to get him or you're going to get... The, Johnny Cash reads it. And then Darth Vader, James Earl Jones reads it. So I choose Alexander Scurby. makes me feel sanctified. And I was listening to him. And it's funny because the way the book of Revelation begins, when Alexander Scurby reads it, this is how it begins. It says, the revelation of St. John the Divine. Chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. <laughs> and I thought, how funny it is that even in his reading of it, he cannot see that they have misascribed this book to being merely to John and not from Jesus Christ. What you're reading is not the revelation of St. John the Divine. Really, to be honest, John was a sinner saved by grace, just like you and just like I. Wasn't nothing divine about him except what's divine about us, which is born again in the Holy Ghost living in us. John was a man like anyone else. He did pin it down. We'll say a word about that in a moment. But this is not the revelation of John. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's no wonder this book of the Bible is such a mystery to people. They begin by misinterpreting Listen, understand, this book ain't about John. This book is about Jesus Christ. So we see how it was bestowed. We see how it was born record to, who bear record of the Word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all the things that He saw. We're not reading hearsay. We're reading things that John himself witnessed. And John is a credible witness. If you're not going to believe him about Revelation, why are you going to believe him about the Gospel of John? Why are you going to believe him about John 3.16? If you're not going to believe him about the book of Revelation, why are you going to believe him about 1 John and 2 John and 3 John? It's amazing so many people today want to throw out what John pinned down in the book of Revelation and yet accept what he pinned down in John 3.16. I'd, I'd propose to you this morning, if we're going to take John 3.16, and I believe every born-again child of God would probably say, yeah, I believe that's the Word of God, then we must also accept the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not only that, we read how it blesses. Verse 3, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. This is the only book in the Bible that comes with an explicit blessing bestowed upon those that do three things. What three things? Well, you've got to read it. Uh, no book has ever helped anyone by sitting on the bookshelf. Trust me. Amen. i got plenty of them that have sat there and I ain't never got a thing out of them. The only ones that I get helped by is those that I read. You know the Word of God's no different. You're not going to get helped by it if you don't read it. 
But not only do you have to read it, you have to hear it. Now, what does that mean? It means you have to heed it. You ever said to your kids, I've said this before, I looked at them and said, are you listening to me? And they say, yeah, I'm listening. You said, but do you hear me? In other words, if, you're, if you ain't said it to your kid, your wife's probably said it to you. Amen. But what, what we mean is, do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Are you, are you accepting it? Are you embracing the impact and meaningfulness and importantness of it. Listen, we don't just got to read it as an academic work. We've got to hear it as the very Word of God, meaningful to our life. And then it says, and keep those things which are written therein. Now, what does it mean to keep? Well, it doesn't mean just to retain it as a possession, but rather it means to observe it as a command. Like, do you keep commandments? Do you keep rules? Do you keep regulations? We need to keep the book of Revelation. We need to see how it applies to our life, and we need to live in light of it. So we see the spiritual character of the book. Then we see the signatures contained in the book. The Bible says in verse 4, that tells us who the servant is that penned it. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace be unto you in peace. We're not left wondering whose hand the Holy Ghost put the pen in. Now, really it does not matter. Uh, It's inspired by the Spirit of God. It's not the thoughts of John. Uh, But certainly we have a credible historical figure that this is attributed to. So John's the servant that penned it. But it don't stop there because this book getting from John, we see the sovereign that produced it. It says from him which is and which was and which is to come. Now later on that language is used about Jesus Christ. But here it's talking about God the Father. And you say, preacher, how do you know that? Well, because later it says, and from Jesus Christ. So there it's talking about God the Father and saying that the book of Revelation is from God the Father. He's the He's the mind of the Godhead. He's the soul of the Godhead. It is from Him that the message and will and mind of God Proceed. So when we read this, we're not just reading uh, some uh, martyr's record. We're not just reading some teacher's teaching, but we're reading the very mind of God the Father. Then we see the Spirit that prompted it. It says, from the seven spirits which are before His throne. Now, there's only one Holy Spirit. Uh, He's part of the Godhead, part of the triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But you know, in the book of Isaiah, it talks about the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit, that it would be upon Christ. And when that language is used, it's talking about the fullness of what the Spirit of God does. You know, the number seven is the number of completion in the Bible. Uh, In other words, it, it reveals to us the idea of a comprehensive, a finished, a complete thing. So what it's saying is this, that this is fully the work of the Holy Spirit. And then it says this, and from Jesus Christ. So we see the servant that penned it, the sovereign that produced it, the spirit that prompted it, and then we see the Savior that performs it. Why does it come from Jesus Christ? Because He's the one that carries out the things in the book of Revelation. It's the revelation of Him. Now what does it say about Him? Well, it talks about Him uh, as prophet. It says, who is the faithful Witness. That talks about how the church age commenced. How did it begin? It began with the faithful witness of Jesus Christ. He was the greatest prophet that Israel ever had. He wasn't only a prophet, but he was the greatest prophet that Israel ever had. When he walked amongst men, he bore witness to the righteousness of God, the character of God, to the uh, prophecies of the Old Testament, uh, to the uh, you know uh, exactitude of the law. I mean, he bore witness to all these things. He looked at uh, at Nicodemus there in John chapter number three and said, "Listen, uh, are you going to receive my witness? My witness is from heaven. If you won't receive an earthly witness, you won't receive a heavenly witness." He's talking about John the Baptist. And what he's saying here is this: I'm the witness, the prophet of God. So he talks about uh, Jesus as the as the prophet and how this age commenced. Then it talks about him as the priest. It says the first begotten of the dead. So in other words, it talked about how the age commenced, but then it talks about how this age continues. What's Jesus doing right now? He's risen from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is our high priest. 
He facilitates our relationship with God. I don't know about you, but sometimes I sin. I know you don't ever sin, right? Uh, listen, you're going to have to argue with old brother John about that too. He said if we say we have no sin, we lie and do not the truth. We've deceived ourselves. We all sin, right? But guess what he said? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who died not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. So it talks about him as priest. And then I like this. It talks about how this church age commenced and how this church age continues. But then it talks about how this church age is going to conclude because it reflects him being the king of kings. It says the prince of the kings of the earth. In other words, we have him in that threefold ministry of prophet, priest, and king. I've got news for you. Listen, when he, when he comes back, he's not coming back to take a poll. He's coming back to take over. When he comes back, he's not coming back to ask your opinion or mine. He's coming back and he's taking the reins of the government of this world and he's going to rule and reign in righteousness. So, uh, we see him in that threefold ministry. So we find the signatures contained here. Then we notice the significance communicated in the book. Now somebody's going to say, preacher, it's good and everything and I appreciate the Bible study, but why would I care? Why is this meaningful to me? Well, remember, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if you're saved by the grace of God, Jesus Christ ought to mean something to you. Uh, In fact, it sort of mentions what He's done for us. It talks about His care of us. It says, unto Him that loved us. And by the way, uh, that word love there does not only speak of the past tense, but it looks forward into the uh, current and into the future. It is a continual state. In other words, He didn't just love us at one time, but He still loves us today and He'll still love us in the future. i got news for you. Why should you care about the book of Revelation? Because the one that it's about cares for you. He loves you. Not only that, we see His cleansing of us. He washed us from our sins in His own blood. We ought to care about it because He's our Savior. He died for our sins. He cleansed us. He washed away all that unrighteousness. Now we still sin. I sin and you sin. But even now the blood of Jesus is effectual to take away our sin, to cleanse us. And we are perpetually in a right state with God because of the righteousness of Christ. Then we see His crowning of us. Verse 6 says this, He hath made us kings and priests unto God and His Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Not only did He uh, love us, not only did He forgive us, but He made us a child of God. He birthed us into the family of God. He elevated us to a position where we don't have to uh, cow down our head or look away uh, in our relationship with God. We have boldness and access. We're a king with God. We're a priest with God. We have access with God. We have authority of God. Not with God, but the authority of God. I mean, listen, all that Jesus did for us, it ought to mean something. This revelation of Jesus Christ. So we see the significance communicated in the book. We see the second coming in the book. I love this. Verse 7 says, Behold, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him, and they also which pierced Him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him. Even so, Amen. Now if I read my Bible correctly, and I believe that I do, I find that the second coming of Christ has two parts. There's the rapture of the church when He comes in the clouds, not with clouds, but in the clouds, and He comes to steal away His bride, the New Testament church. And when that happens, the Bible says He's going to come as a thief in the night. It's not something that people are all going to see and witness and behold, but only those that are saved by the grace of God. But now, what's described here is not the rapture of the church, but it's the appearing of Jesus Christ. At the end of a seven-year tribulation period, He's going to appear in majesty and power and in glory. Listen, He's not coming back to take us home. He's coming back and bringing us back that we might reign and rule with Him for a thousand years. So we see here the certainty of His coming. It says, Behold, He cometh with clouds. 
No question. Hey, there's a lot of things I don't know. I, I joked with folks when we got our, uh, our our calendar here together for the year, I thought about getting it done in dry race, amen? Uh, because it seems like everything we thought was going to happen a certain way didn't turn out that way this past year. But can I tell you what is certain this morning? Jesus is coming back. The very next thing on God's calendar is the rapture of the church. And the things that God says are going to unfold after that in the tribulation period and the persecution of the Jews and the return of Christ visibly, publicly, all those things are certain and sure to happen. We see the spectators of His coming. The Bible says, Every eye shall see Him, they also which pierced Him. In other words, the Jews will see Him. They as a nation will behold Him. The book of Zechariah says, Every eye will look on Him whom they pierced. They'll look at Him and behold Him that they had nailed to a cross. But not only the Jews, the Gentiles will see Him because it says, all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him. Even so, Amen. Everybody's going to see when Jesus comes back in power and in glory. Go ahead and turn off CNN. Amen. You're going to see it. Go ahead and turn off Fox News. Check out of it. You're going to see it when Jesus comes back in power and in glory. And then I see the significance of His coming. The Bible says in verse 8, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Why is the second coming so important? Because it brings consummation. God's plan of redemption for humanity and for this age in particular. You understand when Jesus comes back, that's God coming back. That's God bringing to close all that He's been doing throughout human history. So we see the second coming in the book. We see the suffering companion of the book. The uh, Bible says in verse 9, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, I know there's some folks like to look at that and say, see, see, preacher, he said it right there. He said he's your companion in tribulation, so he must be saying that the church is going to go through the tribulation. I got a problem with that because he also says in the kingdom of Christ. I don't believe right now the kingdom of Christ is ruling on earth. The kingdom of God is within you and me. Our relation, we've submitted under the authority of God. But the kingdom of Christ is a literal, visible kingdom. It's that kingdom that He's going to rule and reign from in Jerusalem during the thousand years. So if John's talking about a literal present state of time and condition known as the tribulation, you have to apply the same thing to the kingdom of Christ. I think instead he's using that term generically. In other words, here's what he's saying. He's saying, I know what it's like to suffer. I, you know, I noticed the trial that John endured. And you say, preacher, why is that a comfort to you? I don't want to see anybody go through hard times. But I ain't going to lie. It's a comfort to know I ain't the only one when I do go through them. I, I don't go through very many and God's been better to me than I, than I deserve. But when I'm having a hard time, it's good to be reminded I ain't the only one having a hard time. John went through suffering and trials. And can I tell you, you may be going through some things. You probably are in the perilous days we're living in. But isn't it good to know there's still children of God going through things too can help each other, encourage each other in these days. I see the trial that John endured. I see the tenacity that John exhibited. The Bible says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Isn't it good to know that John's sufferings didn't stop him from worshiping the Lord? says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He, he, like you've seen all them old prisoner movies, I guess he started keeping a calendar. He wanted to know which day was Sunday. Amen. He's not talking about the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Saturday. He's talking about the Lord's day on Sunday. He said, I went to church, me and God, on Sunday. And God met with me. And then we see the testimony that John encountered. Uh, This is what he heard the voice say. I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, unto Thyatira, unto Sardis, unto Philadelphia, unto Laodicea. Now you say, preacher, what does all that mean? I mean, why, why is that important? Isn't it good to know God was speaking to what John was going through? 
He's going through hard times and suffering and trial. And God shows up and says, I've got a message for you in what you're going through. I'm glad God speaks to us when we're going through a bad time. You know, some folks, you start, everything goes bad, they'll avoid you. Uh, but it just seems like when things go bad in our life, God just scoots up a little closer to us. I'm glad He's present with us. And then we see the splendor of Christ in the book. The Bible says in verse number 12, I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Now here, there is a vision that uh, John describes and that is later on explained to him in the text. But what he sees is a vision of the glorified It's the same vision that Daniel sees in Daniel chapter number 7. There's some differences in how some things are described, but what is described is identical. And you know, John would know something about who this was, because there was a day that John was up on a place we like to call the Mount of Transfiguration, and he saw Jesus transfigured, meaning He was shown in His glory. This wasn't the first time John had seen Jesus looking like this. He had seen Him looking like this before. And what did he mention? I mean, I understand it's the Holy Spirit inspiring it, but John's personality also is informing what he's pinning down. He talks about his voice. He says, I turned to see the voice. Later on, he said that his voice was as the sound of many waters. I'm glad to know God's still speaking to His people, aren't you? I'm glad to know that God is still speaking to His people. Then he talks about his visage. He says, he was in the midst of the seven candlesticks and he was clothed with a garment down to his foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. By the way, that those clothes, that's the clothes of a judge king. That's what that is. In other words, when a king was going to administer and dispense judgment upon his people, that's what he'd put on. That's what he'd wear. And John said, when I saw him, he was dressed in this glorious, splendorous uh, judge king attire. He was there uh, not, not just to be cowed down. He was there not to be crucified afresh and anew. He was there to rule and to judge and to administer justice. That's how he sees him. And he describes all these things. I, time would fail us, but... Uh, The Bible says his head and his hairs were uh, white like wool, talking about his righteousness and his holiness. His eyes were as a flame of fire. In other words, fire refines things and speaks to the ability of Christ to look into your life and mine and know what it is that needs to be dealt with and purified. The Bible says his feet like unto fine brass. Brass in the Bible is associated with judgment. Those feet that once were shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace that went about preaching the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, now they're girt about with brass. Now he's coming back uh, to tramp down the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of God Almighty. Can I just tell you this morning, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you're lost, you better get right. You better receive Christ as your Savior. Right now, He's the meek Galilean. Right now, He's the suffering Savior. Right now, He extends His hand in righteousness and grace. But there's coming a day that He's coming back. And when He comes back, He's dressed for war. You better receive Him right now in His meekness and His grace. And the Bible says uh, in verse number 16, we see His victory. At his, he had in His right hand seven stars, and out of His mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And His countenance was as the sun shineth in His strength. In other words, He comes back, and He's coming back with victory. The Bible likens this in Revelation chapter 19. When He comes back, out of His mouth proceeds a sharp two-edged sword. Uh, the Bible in the book of First Thessalonians, or excuse me, Second Thessalonians, in talking about Jesus Christ, says that He destroys the wicked with the brightness of His coming. And that's what's described there. It says that uh, His countenance was as the sun shineth in His strength. In other words, I'm saying this. You know what we need this morning? We need a fresh glimpse of Jesus. We need to be reminded who He is. We need to be reminded of the second coming. We need to be reminded that we have suffering companions. We need to be reminded of the splendor of Christ. We need to be reminded, hey, we're not on the losing side, we're on the winning side this morning. So He reveals all these things, and then the message begins. Don't get nervous, alright? The message begins. Look what He says. 
we find that there are a few things we need to be reminded of. The actual exchange between John and the Lord Jesus here really begins in verse 17. That's when the exchange back and forth takes place. The Bible says in verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as death. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. What do we need to be reminded of in these days that we're living in? I don't know if you uh, have turned on the television or looked out the window, but it's all burning down around us. You know that, right? We're living in tough times, and I don't mean to oversell that. There's been people lived with poverty and disease and, and persecution uh, a hundredfold what we're experiencing. But I'm saying this, it, it almost seems like like the, the world's starting to shake apart at the seams. It seems like everything is just uh, boiling and roiling and seething and breathing, and it, it just seems like everything. What do we as the church need to be reminded of? I'd say, number one, this morning, we need to be reminded of our position. So what do you mean, preacher? We need to be reminded where we stand, or rather, where we kneel. You know, there are a lot of things that are in question in these days, but what our responsibility is as the New Testament church should not be one of them. We ought to know that nothing has changed for us. Uh, Listen, it don't matter. Presidents come, presidents go. Conflict comes, conflict goes. Uh, Stability comes, stability goes. Uh, Economies come, economies go. All these change. But you know, none of that takes God by surprise. And if we get our perspective right about where we need to be and what we need to be doing, it help us in this day. I got, listen, I I turn on TV and think, I don't know what them folks are going to do, but I never have to wonder what I need to do. I know what I need to do because it's not changed. I need to keep doing what the Word of God has instructed me to do. Now, what do I mean by our position? Well, notice, first off, we're to live at His feet. Whenever John saw Him like this, the Bible says, when I saw Him, I fell at His feet. Uh, What does that mean? Well, I would say this, we ought to be worshiping Him in fellowship. You know, in the book of Luke, the Bible tells us a story about a woman that went and fell at His feet, began to wash His feet with her tears and with her hair, uh, broke an alabaster box and anointed Him. What, What it's a picture of is a person giving everything they've got for the use and for the benefit and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Can I tell you, here's what we need to be doing today. Preacher, don't know what we're going to do. Don't know what we're going to do. I know what we ought to do. We ought to stay close to His feet. Just keep praying, keep in your Bible, keep living close to it. You don't have to change what your purpose and your theme and your life is. The world can't change that. Listen, it's the same as it's always been. Stay close to His feet, worshiping Him, fellowshipping with Him, learning of Him, uh, spending time with Him. We ought to be worshiping at His feet. Then notice what He says here. When I saw Him, I fell at His feet. And then notice these next two words. It says, as dead. So in other words, in as much as we're to live at His feet, what does that mean to live at His feet? Well, I would say it means worshiping Him in fellowship, spending time with Him. But I think it also means the mortifying of the flesh. Why, why did He fall down as dead? Because the idea here is that His flesh just gave way. That His strength just gave way. You see this all through the Bible. Anytime somebody comes face to face with, with Jesus in the Word of God, they don't ever stand upright. They always fall on their face. And many times it'll even say explicitly they were as one Dead. Now, what does that mean? It means that their, their little, their little heart just give out. I mean, the flesh couldn't, they were just overcome. They just fell down, fainted right at his feet. Now, you say, preacher, are you saying we need to faint when we come to church? Don't. We don't have the insurance for it. Amen. You, you say, well, preacher, are, are you, are you saying, what do you get? I'm saying this. The reason that happened to John is because his flesh gave out. Your flesh will always give out. Your flesh will always fail you. Part of living at His feet is mortifying self and saying, you know, it ain't about me. It ain't about living in my strength and doing my thing and living my way and doing my will. I need to put all that down and instead just live for His glory. 
So we're to live at His feet. But then number two, I like this. Look what it says. He laid His right hand upon me. Man, I love that. He laid His right hand upon me. Now later on, we're going to find out that symbolically we're in His hand. And that's what John 10 says, you know, that we're in the hand of the Father. No man can pluck us out of the Father's hand. But that's not what it says here. Here it says He put His hand upon me. In other words, John was underneath the hand of God. You know, it's a reminder in these days, we need to live at His feet. But number two, we need to live with His hand on us. We need to live with the hand of God on our life. Now, what do we mean when we say that? Well, I I would say that we mean it this way. We mean we need to live seeking the uh, will and mind of God, doing the work of God with His strength, with His favor, and with His guidance. That's what it means to have your hand upon is guidance, right? I've got two little boys and they just, they they don't, they don't know what a straight line is. Anywhere they go, we get out of the store and they just run for the nearest, you know, mud puddle to jump in. And a lot of times I'll have to reach down, put my hand upon them, and I'm trying to guide them. Sometimes I'm pushing them forward. Sometimes I'm holding them back. Sometimes I'm turning them this way. Sometimes I'm turning them that way. But what I'm trying to do is take my will and make it their will. You know, that's what it is to have the hand of God upon us. It's to let His will be made our will. Our will don't matter. Just, Lord, what do you want for our life? And you know, when we do that, we'll find that God will do great things through us. The greatest mistake a Christian ever makes is in thinking that he can do anything by himself. That's why Christ said in John chapter 15, he didn't want his disciples wondering about it. He said, without me, you can do nothing. Not without me, you can do some things. Not without me, you can do small things or insignificant things. He said, without me, you can do nothing. And you say, well, preacher, I can do some things without God. You can, but they won't be meaningful. They won't amount to anything. They won't certainly won't be anything in the eyes of God. If we're wanting to do anything of meaning and value and purpose, we must do it with the strength and through the strength of God. We've got to have His hand upon us. Now, somebody I hope is sitting there thinking, preacher, I want that. I want that. How can I do that? How can I live that way? You know the Word of God tells us in 1 Peter 5, verse 6, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. You say, Preacher, how can I have the hand of God upon you? Well, you're going to have to humble yourself. You're going to have to admit that you don't have the wisdom. You don't have the strength. You can't do it in and of yourself, but that God can. And you're going to have to submit yourself to His rule and His guidance. So I, I see we need to be reminded of our position. But then when the voice speaks, what does it say? It doesn't look at John and say, John, everything's not as bad as you think it is. Used to, we'd say that to folks. We've quit saying that now, right? Because if we're to be honest, we'd have to say, things might be worse than we know it is. We don't even know anymore, you know? Used to, we'd say things like, it'll be, it'll be better here in a little while. Uh, listen, this past year's broke us of that. Somebody say amen. We don't know. What is it that gives peace to the believer? Well, I would say this. We need to be reminded of our position. Number two, we need to be reminded of His person. He says, fear not. Everything's going to be okay. No, that's not what He says. Fear not. It's all going to be over soon, John. No, that's not what He says. Fear not. It's not as bad as you think it is, John. No, that's not what He says. Here's what He says. He says, fear not. I am the first and the last. In other words, He says, John, here's where you're going to get peace. You're going to get peace by remembering who I am. You're going to have to be reminded of a few things. One, that He's the author and He's the finisher. He's the first and the last. Can I tell you something? Listen, if you're born again by the grace of God, if you've been saved, Jesus was there when you got born again. Can I tell you something? He'll be there when you enter into the presence of God too. He said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I don't know what's going to happen in the next year, but I know for the child of God that they can have confidence that the Lord's going to be with them. He's not going to betray you. He's not going to bail on you. He's not going to run from you. He's the first and the last. In other words, we could say it this way. He designs life. 
That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, right? He's the author and He's the finisher of our faith. He's writing the story and He's finishing out the index at the very end. He designs life. You know what gives us peace today is to be reminded that God's in control of this thing. Uh, nothing happens by accident or by happenstance or by incident. It happens by providence. And I understand people uh, can try to live contrary to the will and heart and mind of God and they live in disobedience. God will permit them to do that to a certain degree. But listen, uh, no amount of mankind trying to thwart God is going to thwart God. He's in control of all of it. So I see He's the author and finisher. Number two, we need to be reminded He's alive forevermore. He says, I am He that liveth and was dead... And behold, I am alive forevermore. So not only does He design life, but He defeated death. Uh, No matter what you and I may face in the next year, I'll tell you this, God has a bigger victory than what the world can throw at us in defeat. Now listen, I ain't no prosperity preacher. You might wind up poorer for serving God on this side of glory. I'm not saying that you won't have health problems. I'm not saying that you won't have financial problems. I'm not saying you won't have relationship problems in your family and in your home. All those things may happen. They may exist and God will get glory out of all of them. But I'm saying this, there's no problem you will face that God is not big enough to handle. He defeated death, which is the enemy of all men. He is alive forevermore. And then he says this, I have the keys of hell and death. So I see that he's the author and finisher. He's alive forevermore, but he has absolute authority. But man has the keys of hell and of death. Boy, I'd say that, that, that really messes up a lot of people's bad theology. A lot of people try to suggest that in the Bible, the word hell just means the grave. Wouldn't that be pretty redundant if the Lord said, I have the keys of the grave and of death? Wouldn't that be silly? I think God's got more sense than that, don't you? When he says hell here, he's not talking about uh, just some, uh, you know, abode. Some he's not just talking about the grave symbolically. He's talking about the place where those that die without Christ uh, spend uh, whatever time until they're cast into the lake of fire. He's talking about the place of condemnation and damnation for those that die without Christ. But you know what he says? He said, "I've got the keys of hell and of death." In other words, he reminds us that he designs life and he defeats death, but also that he dispenses justice. Uh, He is the one that has the authority over all those things. Isn't it good to know there's somebody in charge? Doesn't it feel sometimes like the, like, like the the patients who took over the asylum, you know? I, I mean, it just seems like the only, the only thing that seems to be permitted in modern governance is insanity. Uh, but I'm glad to know there's one that's got the keys. Amen. I'm glad to know there's one that's in control of all this. And he dispenses judgment and justice with perfect righteousness. So we need to be reminded of His person. Then He says this, verse 19, I won't say a lot about it, but it says, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. We need to be reminded of His plan. Uh, namely, that He has a plan. Amen. And that His plan is perfect. But, but what's He saying here? Well, it's amazing. The book of Revelation is the only book of the Bible that has a, a God-inspired outline for us to follow. And the book of Revelation falls into three portions. There's that which was, that which is, and that which is to come. The first chapter from where John's setting is that which was. He has already seen this image of the Lord Jesus Christ and he has received this message that he's Alpha and Omega. And that's what he's talking about. Chapter 1 is that which was. And isn't it good to know, by the way, that encompasses not just what John experienced, but all things in the past leading up to that moment. You know, it's a reminder to me that God records the past. God takes record and takes note of the past. There's never been anything that you and I have done that has escaped the consciousness of God. He's aware of all those things. He may, through the forgiveness and grace of Jesus Christ, 
He, he will he will choose to judicially set those things aside. In other words, almost like a lawyer saying, I won't bring up charges. Almost like a judge saying, I won't bring up charges. He chooses to judicially set those aside. But he's aware of everything we've ever done. The bad things, the good things, the things you thought nobody saw, he saw. The things that you thought nobody heard, he heard. The things that you thought nobody knew because it lived in your heart and in your mind, he knows those things. He records the past. Then I like this, he says the things which are. What he's talking about is this present church age. And he goes on, by the way, to, to talk about those seven churches and how they in some ways mirror and remind us of the church age that we're living in. That's what he's talking about when he says the things which are. So not only does he record the past, he redeems the present. He's working in the New Testament church today. I know sometimes, listen, we get bit by that nostalgia bug and there's nothing wrong with remembering all the good things that God's done for us in the past. But sometimes it's a shame. It sounds like we're giving God a eulogy. It sounds like we're standing up at His funeral talking about all the things that He used to do many years ago. Can I tell you, He's alive forevermore. He's still working today in your family, my family, your church, my church. He's working in our nation. He's working in our children. He's working in our marriages. I'm saying God is still alive working. He redeems the present. Then I notice this. He rules the future. He said, in the things which shall be hereafter. If you want to know where it falls in the book of Revelation, it's from chapter 4 onwards. In chapter 4, it opens up. John hears a trumpet. Uh, sees a door open. Hears a voice. says, come up hither. And that reminds us of what God's going to do for the New Testament church. We're going to hear a trumpet. We're going to hear a voice. A door in heaven will be open. And the bride of Christ will be snatched away. Isn't it amazing that every at, the, at no point after chapter 4 is the church mentioned now, I don't know about you, but it seems like God's somewhat interested in the church. He loved it and gave Himself for it. Seems to me like if the true church, the real church, was on earth during those seven years, seems like He might have said something about that. Seems like He might have been paying attention to what they was doing and what was going on. But nowhere are they mentioned. No, you know why? These are the things which are hereafter. Hereafter what? Hereafter the church is gone. Hereafter this current dispensation of grace, the church age. So we need to be reminded of His plan. More than anything, listen, we need to be reminded He has a plan. He, he has, he knows about the past. He's working in the present. He rules the future. He's in control of everything. Then verse uh, 20 says this, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. In other words, we find here we need to be reminded of His presence. And you say, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, he says that these stars are angels of the churches. And it's my personal opinion. He's talking about the pastors of those churches. By the way, that ain't just because I'm a pastor. Amen. <laughs> if it wasn't for the grace of God, he'd, he'd flip me out of his hand just like he would any one of us. But what he's saying, he's talking about those ministering in the church. The people of those churches. And he says, those people, they're in my right hand. And he says about these candlesticks that they're a picture of those churches. In other words, he's saying this, I'm right in the middle of all of it. I, 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 let me say it this way. I notice here our place in the hand of God. He says, where, where are God's people? They're in His hand. Now, what John chapter 10 says, no man shall pluck them out of my Father's hand. He retain, He keeps them in His hand. I got news for you. I remember hearing preachers say this back this. I about fell out in the aisle and, and died laughing. If this offends you, I'm sorry. Learn to laugh. But he's, he's talking about eternal security. He said this. He said, if you didn't want to get saved, you shouldn't have got saved in the first place. Amen. <laughs> Hey, I, I hate to tell you and report to you this morning, but if you got saved by the grace of God, you and Jesus are stuck together. And and if He was to act like you act, He'd be a lot more upset about it than you are. Amen? I'm saying this, we're in His hand and we're not going anywhere. Uh, this world is powerful. The power's in this world. I'm growing more convinced day and day and day that this world is more orchestrated and, and, and disciplined in its wickedness and in its plans 
than ever it has been before. I, I, you know, but I will tell you this, all the strength this world has cannot pry the fingers of God open, cannot take us out of His hand. We, we, can, we can in and of ourselves try to live in a reckless way, but even then we're not out of His hand. We're always in His hand, always and at all times. We're in the hand. I see our place in the, in the hand of God, but then I notice His, His place in the house of God. He, John says, I saw the seven golden candlesticks. You remember what he said? This has been like six hours ago when we started this sermon. But verse 13 says this, in the midst, this is where he saw him. He saw him in the midst of the seven candlesticks. In the midst of the seven candlesticks. Isn't it good to know, listen, there may be days you wake up, try to decide if you're going to come to church, but every Sunday God comes. Every Sunday God comes. He's there. He's there. He's present. There may be days we show up and we're grieved and we're troubled and we're... Where, and we feel like, man, what, what could God do? But you know God is always present in the midst of His people. He's always here. He's here this morning. Uh, he's here this morning. Uh, you say, preacher, how do you know? I, I can feel Him in my soul. I can see it in the witness of the Spirit of God and working in our hearts. I can see it in the fruit that comes from the... God is present in the house. He's in the midst of the candlestick. I'm glad. Listen, we can go to the house of God we can find the Lord. Now somebody's going to say, preacher... He's always present with me. He'll never leave me nor forsake me. Uh, so, you know, why do I have to go to church? Listen, if you want to argue with God about whether the church matters or not, you go right ahead and do it. But the Bible says He loved the church and He gave Himself for it and we're, we're to assemble together. Now, why? Because we need that. Not because God's sitting around just wanting to say, what can I have them do on a Sunday? But because we need that. And I understand there's a lot of folks uh, battling a lot of things. And I'm not saying any of this from a perspective of criticism. I'm just saying this. Church is important enough that God shows up to it. We need it in our hearts and in our lives. I know people sit and can't be there. I know people travel at times. I understand that. I'm not criticizing that. I travel. I go on vacation occasionally. I'm not against all, but I'm saying as a general rule in our life, we need the house of God. Why? Because that's where God dwells. That's where His midst is. That's where He meets with His people. So I see His presence, His presence here. And then finally, and I'm done, we need to be reminded of our purpose. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, the Bible says this, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. You know, this world has its stars. Isn't it amazing? You know, the devil's a counterfeiter. That's what he is by nature. He's a counterfeiter. He's he's not an originalist. He don't come up with anything new. He takes things that God has created and twists them and warps them beyond purity and beyond recognition. And isn't it amazing? You know what the Bible says about about stars in Daniel chapter number 12, verse 3? It says, They that, uh, that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. They that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Now you know what the devil's done. He's taken that word star in its significance and he's stripped it of any spiritual meaning. And now a person's a star if they can throw a football. They're a star if they can sing with auto-tune. They're a star if they can, if they can dress wickedly. I mean, and there's people today that are famous that even they admit there's no reason they're famous. I mean, there's people that just do dumb stuff on YouTube and that's enough to make them richer than I'll ever be. I don't resent that. I ain't telling you that. I'm telling me that when I say I don't resent that. But but what, I, what I'm saying is this. The devil has taken and gutted that of any meaning. The world has its stars today. But you know God does too. God does too. Who are His stars? Well, they've turned many to righteousness. Uh, those that are willing to do the will and the work of God and live in, in righteousness. Those that, that, that are wise with heavenly wisdom, those are the ones that are the stars of God. What does a star do? Well, you know what a star is, right? A star is nothing but a sun. But you know, in perspective, the sun, because of its...
proper place looks a lot larger. Sun is a star. That's what it is. But when we look up in the sky and we see those little stars, what do they look like to us? Well, they're just mini versions of the sun. To, our, to us, our perspective. I know the sun ain't the biggest star, but I'm saying to our perspective. And you know, it's a reminder to me of what our responsibility is. As He is the light of the world, we're to be the light of the world. So what are we to do? What's our purpose? Well, I would say number one, we're to share His love. We're to share His love. He's the Son of Righteousness. He's come with healing in His wings. How did He do that? How, how did He, how did He shine? He shined through the darkness of Calvary, through the love that He, that He displayed towards fallen man. And you know, that's what we're to do. We're to share that love with a lost and dying world. That's our purpose. I, I, I've got news. There's a lot of, there's a lot of characters and crowds and organizations I can't yoke up with and, and, and I understand they mean well and I'm not trying to criticize them, but they got all these different purposes for the church to exist. We're supposed to be lobbying groups and we're supposed to be, you know, humanitarian agencies. We're supposed to be all these things. But when I read my King James Bible, what I find the church is to be is the arbiter and bearer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're to take the hope of the truth of the gospel to a lost and dying world. That's why we live. That's why we breathe. That's why we exist. I'm not saying we can't do other good things beside it, but we better not neglect that thing because that's our purpose. We're to share His love. And then number two, I'd say this, we're to shine His light. You know, there was a time that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. But right before He went to Calvary, He looked at His disciples and said, ye are the light of the world. The city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. In other words, He's saying the same way that I have shined forth righteousness you too are to shine forth righteousness. Now, that's not to say that He's a light and we're a different light. Rather, it's to say that because He lives in us, He is the light within us. There's no nascent inner light in you that's just intrinsic of goodness and righteousness. We're nothing but darkness inside. But when God saves us by His grace, He translates us from the kingdom of darkness, from the power of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And the Father of lights takes up residence in our, in our life. And we become, as the book of 1 Thessalonians says, we become children of light, expected to walk in light. And now the light of Christ is living within us. We're to shine that light in a dark world. Preacher, it's so dark out there. It ought to be easier to shine then. It ought to be easier to shine then. Preacher, it's such a dark world. It's such a wicked world. I agree with you. It's a mess. We ought to get some of them saved. Maybe it'll be a little better. But I'll tell you this, the way, the responsibility that we have, preacher, what do we do? We need to give the gospel of Christ so that others may become Christians, but then we as Christians need to be Christians in this world that we're living in. Not just lip service, not just formality, not just ceremony, but living the truth and life of Christ before us. This is what we need today. This is what I need today. This is what Walridge needs today. We need to be reminded all of these things. Because listen, I don't know what the future will hold, but I know this. This truth will hold. No matter what the future holds, the Word of God will hold. The truth of God will hold. We better get yoked into it. We better get it ingrained in our life. We better make it the driving purpose and theme and passion before we make shipwreck of our testimony of Jesus Christ. Let's bow together this morning. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to what's been said today with every head bowed, with every eye closed. But if God has spoken to your heart about something, Here's what I think you ought to do. I think you ought to slip out of your seat and meet him down here in this altar and speak to him about it. Preacher, I don't have to go to an altar. No, you don't. If God gives you liberty not to, then by all means, I'm not trying to twist your arm. But I, I do believe this. If God wants to meet with us, if he's prompted for us to go, we ought to give him the respect and the honor and the love and the gratitude to be willing to move and respond in obedience unto him. The altar's open. If God touched your heart, would you find a place down here? And would you speak with the Lord this morning? Whatever He's desiring in your life, give it to Him. Let Him have it. 
He'll, he'll do more with it than you or I can. Listen, it may be some sin nobody knows about. Go ahead and yield it to the Lord. Ask His forgiveness. He'll forgive you. He'll cleanse you. It may be some fear, some anxiety that you have. There's plenty of it going around today. Can I tell you, listen, the closer you get to Him, the more peace you'll have in your heart. Whatever it is, why don't you meet Him in this place?